Natural gas. Natural gas, bullish. Crude oil. Neutral. Gasoline. Neutral. Gold. Bearish. Silver. Bearish. Platinum. Bearish. Copper. Bearish. Palladium. Bearish. Soybeans. Soybeans also bearish. Soybean oil. Bearish. Soybean meal. Bearish. Wheat. Neutral. Oats. Bearish. Uh, coffee. Bullish. Orange juice. Bearish. Cocoa. Bearish. Sugar. Bearish. Cotton. Bearish. Bitcoin. Bullish. We are in the midst of a huge commodity bull market. Oil and natural gas are off the charts. Uh, industrial metals are going wild. Precious metals, even soft commodities are breathing some pretty rarefied air. So I wanted to speak to someone who's following these commodity markets extremely closely, someone with a dispassionate view. Here at Forward Guidance, we've had on uh, you know, very senior uh, investors who have seen you know half a century of, of, of price action, uh, if you will, you know, Felix Zuloff, uh, we've had, you know, um, you know, legendary investors. But here at Forward Guidance, we're not just about the uh, past, you know, previous financial, we're trying to find the uh, bright, bright financial minds of the future. Um, and you know, you, the audience has been very generous in that you haven't held my young age against me. So I hope you will extend the same courtesy, uh, to my next guest, Lucas Kimmela, uh, author of the commodity report. Lucas, welcome to forward guidance. Jack, uh, thank you very much for having me on the show. It's a huge uh, pleasure for me. Thanks. Lucas, you are someone who, you know, within a minute of reading your work, your love, your passion, your fascination with the commodity complex is evident. How did you get this this love for commodities and, and how did you develop as a commodity analyst? Well, thanks for the introduction at first. Um, I guess that's just something that not many people do over here in Germany where, where I'm based. Um, in Germany, mainly people talking about um, stocks, ETFs, but uh, other things that are not so much known, like, for example, commodity commodity trading in forms of futures trading and uh, investing and research in that space. It's just something that, uh, yeah, wasn't wasn't really known over here. And I, I just wanted to do uh, something different back then. Well, um, if I look back, I started uh, with uh, reading and uh, making analysis in, in this space uh, about four years ago. And um, I'm, I'm still learning till today. And um, yeah, it's, it's just something that I really love doing. Um, and where I think I really have found a niche, especially over here in Germany, where, as I, as I said before, um, commodity research is not so much known. And Lucas, your, your research, part of it is fundamental, but the bulk of it is quantitative and technical looking, you know, looking at back tests, looking at, oh, the, you know, the last time that this spread was in an inversion, you know, 70% of the time oil was up over the next th three months, stuff like that stuff that is actually, uh, it's much better at predicting uh, price movements then explaining why you know it's it's not friendly to narratives um which is which is why I want to get into it so how, how why are you that what what drew you to that style of analysis rather than someone who's saying oh I'm looking at the pipelines I'm looking at the uh, um you know what's going on on the ground exactly Jack um I, I'm a big friend and a believer that we can learn uh, lots of from the history 
And um, this is also the approach uh, that I'm going with in my investing um, philosophy. So what I'm basically doing uh, is I'm, I'm looking, of course, at fundamentals. So what have we on the supply side, on the demand side, and as well, what have we for storage data and things that are just important in, in this space. But um, as you pointed out, I'm looking very much at the technical analysis, which is not only looking at the chart and look when there is a, is a movement or a breakout. Um, for me, technical analysis is more about um, positioning data to look um, at the CFTC futures data to look at the term structure of futures contracts and um, to look at seasonals or at cycles that um, repeat over and over in the market and where um, I'm able to detect some, some patterns that I can use um, for me um, to perform uh, trades in the market. Um, yeah, this is uh, kind of the approach that I'm that I'm doing and um, that I'm doing successfully until um, today. Lucas, I'm gonna ask you. Let's play. Let's play a little bit of a game. I'm gonna name some commodities, and you'll say whether you're bullish, bearish, or neutral on, let's say, a, a three month time horizon. How's that sound? Okay, Jay, let's do this game. <laughs> okay, okay. Crude oil. Yeah, crude oil is uh, neutral for me, but slightly bullish. Natural gas. Natural gas, uh, as you can see also today with a big spike uh, on the charts, uh, is uh, very bullish for me right now. Yes, I should say we're filming on Tuesday, April 5th. Uh, live cattle. Live cattle, also a very bullish market for me where we get into uh, bullish seasonalities very soon. Um, so I uh, have that also on my watches. <laughs> All right. Uh, gold and silver. Gold and silver are kind of a, of a neutral but slightly bearish for me um, especially when we have a high correlation at gold with um, the real yields um, of course the precious metals currently um, get kind of a premium because of, of the war that's going on in the Ukraine silver on the other on the other hand is slightly more industrial driven um, precious metal um, where we have to look how the um, economy is evolving over the next few months um if we if we see there that the recession becomes more and more likely and we saw lots of evidence um in, in the past two weeks of that um silver could also have a tough tough time um in over the next month so um as i said before slightly bearish towards both of them platinum and palladium platinum and palladium are for me um i see their use case more in the uh, industrial area as well um, platinum and palladium are pretty snate for um, building catalyzators in the uh, automotive industry and therefore I'm still slightly bearish towards them but um, and there's one point we have to really point out here is that uh, Russia is the main supplier um, uh, to the world they account for about um, 40% of total palladium so uh, of course the, this metal is uh, highly news driven right now um uh, yeah soybeans soybeans actually uh really new um but um a bearish thesis here um because we uh, saw last week a new release a news release from the usda pointing out that farmers switching actually from uh, planting more co corn rather than soybeans uh, simply because of the fact that um, they have 
um, much less of a fertilizer exposure. So you need more fertilizers to plant corn um, to, and to plant soybeans. Um, and um, this will, of course, lead uh, to a higher yield of soybeans in, in the future. And therefore, I think that um, soybeans is slightly bearish right now. And uh, on the other hand, corn is slightly more bullish right now. Soybean is sl- slightly bearish. And I, we'll get into your, your thinking there uh, about the fertilizer and the, the planting seeds and the acreage. Fascinating that you know, I, I learned that from reading your work. Uh, so you're slightly bearish on soybeans, but is there another soybean-related product that you're more bearish on? Actually, if you talk about soybeans, which is the main product, um, you also have to talk about soybean oil and soybean meal. So basically, if you crush a single soybean, uh, you get uh, some amount of soybean oil and the other amount is uh, yeah, crush, which uh, gets transformed into, into meal, soybean meal. And um, for me, actually, soybean meal uh, looks um, the most bearish right now. And um, this is also uh, a trade I'm currently performing, um, yeah, to the downside. <laughs> so, yes, you're a short soybean meal. We'll get into that. Uh, anything in, this, in the world of the softs, coffee, orange juice, cocoa, sugar, cotton, that you that you're, have a view on? Yeah, softs is um, also a very fascinating sector because uh, almost every soft commodity has its own story. Um, if you, you can, for example, um, compare the uh, market dynamics of the coffee market with the market dynamics of the cocoa market or the sugar market. Um, so very fascinating market, very diversified market. Um, I'm currently very bullish on um, coffee as well. Um, but uh, the rest of the, the commodities, for example, orange, orange juice, orange juice futures, um, uh, something that I'm more bearish towards. Um, we also have to point out that soft commodities are more the luxury type of commodities. Um, so they also um, have to do with economic momentum. Is uh, Our economy is more expanding. Our um, people in other countries able to afford these luxury um, commodities. Bitcoin. Bitcoin is uh, actually also uh, bullish for me right now, uh, which which actually sounds crazy to me uh, because the underlying fundi- fundamental situation looks more like uh, that we have a risk of, that we see draining liquidity, less liquidity in the market, um, which actually should weaken the price of risk assets uh, if, you, if you put uh, Bitcoin into a basket of risk assets. Um, but... Bitcoin is still surprisingly uh, stable at, at the current levels. And um, yeah, so for now, Bitcoin is still uh, bullish for me. Lucas, we've got a, a chart that you made of the year-to-date performance of the, the commodities. Uh, and it, it is very striking. Uh, the, the clear leader has been the energy uh, complex. What are you seeing there? Why are you more bear- bullish on natural gas as opposed to oil? And then how does Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine factor into all that? Of course, um, as we can clearly see, energy was the best performing sector year to date, uh, but closely followed by the, by the grain sector. Um, and, uh, energy is still quite bullish, um, explicit to say it, um, natural gas, because uh, my my pattern is uh, confirmed there. I, I see strong market fundamentals there right now. 
Um, I see a huge demand for natural gas. Um, we see especially um, the Russian crisis, um, which affects the price of this commodity a lot. Um, if you look to Europe, where I'm based, um, we have big, big troubles to um, keep up with the demand because we would like to put some kind of embargo over uh, Russian uh, imports of uh, natural gas, of oil and also of coal. Um, so yeah, we, we have to figure out how, how to keep uh, demand uh, meet. Um, but uh, as a good uh, gets less and less uh, available on the market, this uh, automatically pushes up uh, the price of a commodity. Um, that's basic economics and uh, it's actually what we're seeing right now natural gas um, in terms why I'm more bullish on natural gas right now than on crude oil uh, it's just that we in a relative more uh, stronger upward uh, seasonality in natural gas than we are in crude oil um, moreover the positioning data which I'm looking at is, is quite bullish um and yeah the the sentiment around natural gas is also not uh, quite as crowded as it is for example a crude oil right now so um basically to say it in simple words both both energy sources right now are still attractive but um over over the short term so let's say three months I, I, I still believe that uh, we have uh, better opportunities um, in natural gas market than um, in, in the crude oil market. So when you say seasonality, you know, I, I've heard of that before in the, the, the spring to summer period is pretty bearish for oil on average over the past 30 years. Uh, then there's something called the turnaround season, which is when pe- you know, it starts to get cold. Um, but what does that actually mean? You know, I, you've got a lot of charts on the the seasonality. You know, let's just take a look at the one for natural gas, for example. Uh, what are we seeing here, and why does that? Inf- you know, wh- how does that shape your your bullish view on on natural gas, and how does the seasonality of oil uh, shape that too? Yeah, um, if we look at the seasonality of natural gas, we seen clearly that we last week entered uh, the build-up phase um, of the year, which last six months in general this is a time where inventories in the us get built up again so natural gas has has to be bought and inventories have to get filled up again also if you a consumer you um, buy natural gas in times when it's get when it's getting warmer and you fill up your tank in times when you don't have to heat Um, so that's just basic uh, basic knowledge Um, and this Wait, represent- you, as a consumer, you use more natural gas when it's getting warmer? No, what, what you do as a consumer is you uh, refill the tanks when it gets warmer because you need uh, the storage, the natural gas, um, when it gets cold again. So, yeah, you basically buy natural gas back in spring and summer uh, because you need it in autumn and winter. Does that make a lot of sense? Like, I feel like if if there's a... You know, when it's hot, you think that and you know people talk about oh the cold winter. Europe's going to have a cold winter. You need all this natural gas. Isn't it winter when the real uh, price spikes are are likely? The price spikes are actually, um, if you look at the past, more likely in uh, periods of the build-up phase, which is um, from now on over the next six months. 
Um, why this is, what, what the fundamental driver behind this is, I really can't tell you, Jack. Um, but I know uh, from a statistical point of view that it's uh, just important and uh, that it works. Um, and this is also something in my thinking process. If I see something that really uh, has an importance and that worked over many, many years, um, then it's something I really want to include into my analysis. And um, this is, for example, here also um, in the seasonality data of a natural gas. And um, the same is uh, partially true for, for crude oil. Basic uh, thinking here again, um, inventories get filled up when, when not too much uh, crude oil is needed right now, because we get now again back in, into spring and summer, temperatures get warmer, um, households need less oil to heat. And this is the time when you want to uh, refill your tanks. Um, so yeah, this is, uh, This is why the seasonality is looking like it looks like. Okay, we got the buildup of the tanks and we can actually look at this chart of the stocks of US crude oil that's in black versus the price of crude oil in green. And we'll see, you know, during 2020, there was a huge buildup in stocks because demand for oil just fell off a cliff. But now the stocks of oil are just so low. They're almost, you know, they're flirting with the lows that it made in 2018. So Uh, it's like a, a four. It's almost making a four-year low. How should we be thinking about that? Because when I think, oh, the inventories are so low, there's no oil. But then also, you're telling me once the stocks are building back up, that that is extremely bullish. So the fact that inventories are so low, you know, I've seen people who I respect a lot, people who I've interviewed, like Tracy uh, Shukart, talk about how uh, low inventories is a bullish sign. Uh, does your analysis uh, corroborate that? And you, know, how should we be thinking if the stocks are about to surge back up? Great point, Jack, and also a concerning point. Um, last week, uh, Biden announced that uh, he will release um, some reserves from the strate Strategic Reserve, um, SPR. Uh, I guess it was about a million barrels per day over a time frame of um, six months, um, which is quite bearish in the short term for the forward futures contracts, uh, which are due in a few couple of months. I guess this was also the reason why we saw uh, to some extent the decline in crude oil prices in the last week. But uh, if you think about it, it's also quite bullish uh, for contracts that are further in the future. Because uh, if you release now oil from the SPR reserves, these reserves somehow have to get uh, restocked again sometimes. And I can tell you there's a really high probability that the US has to pay a higher price for oil uh, to refill these stocks um, in the future. I guess the next um, four to six months will really show us um, what we can expect from the future because it's not only the US, it's also Europe. Um, we really have to uh, restock our inventories um, before the next autumn and winter comes when we will be again uh, reliant on, on these inventories to yeah, heat our homes, basically. And um, yeah, basically, if we, if we look at the US government, there are also some um, options they have to build up these inventories. I mean, um, the simplest one would be to just increase production again. 
um, but uh, it currently looks like that's not happening because there are structural issues in in the oil industry where we saw that um, just these uh, low low capex sector involved because all of the ESG hype that built it up over over many many years. Um, and basically resulted into declining cash flows into the sector. Moreover, um, companies in the oil sector used then um, those profits they, they generated to increase the shareholder value um, in terms of um, repaying debt, um, making stock buybacks or paying out uh, higher dividends. So we have a problem here that we can't pick up the production in the US um, to the extent that we really need it right now. Um, another way or another option for the US government um, to increase inventories again would be um, to uh, yeah, get some um, better signs from, from the OPEC um, because uh, over, over the last couple of months, they weren't even able to really meet their production goals um, that changed uh, in the last month. So they were able to meet those goals again and meet the um, production promises they made, which is basically a good sign. But uh, we do not have, we, we can't forget um, that the OPEC is an ally of, of Russia. They're working very close together in terms of OPEC+. Plus. And um, I guess you, the OPEC, really would not like to be, uh, to any extent, political. And um, therefore, I, I really don't expect that OPEC will um, increase the production significantly from here on, even if they uh, would be able to do it, just um, yeah, to not upset Russia, basically. Another option I see to uh, increase these inventories again is um, getting a deal done with Iran in terms of a nuclear deal. Um, this could supply as many as uh, 750,000 barrels of oil, uh, more, more than currently. Um, but yeah, as you can see, there are a few options that we have. Um, but all of them are highly political driven and um, I'm really not able to make a comment on how uh, yeah, probable each of these options is right now. Mm. So you're cautiously bullish on oil, but you don't have a position. But it's my understanding that you actually do have a position in natural gas. How are you trading that? You know, What sort of contracts? And also, do you have a particular price target? Do you have a stop loss? How are you thinking about, about risk? And you know, are you bullish or are you very bullish? That's a very good point. I mean, this is also something really more people have to speak about is basically risk management. Um, so... Basically, you can be 60% of the times wrong, uh, but you can still be a good investor or a good uh, trader if your, if your profits are larger than your losses, uh, which sounds simple, but it isn't. <laughs> um, I, I do think um, that uh, natural gas will, will go further up from here. Um, a specific price target I haven't got. Um, what I'm what I'm using from here on is is a trading stop loss. So I'm 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 a trend trader. I try to um, stay as long in in the in the trade as I can, and I try to ride the wave as as high as I can. And if uh, the trend changes and I get stopped out, then I get stopped out. 
Um, but this is kind of my philosophy uh, behind um, the trades I'm performing. Lucas, what was your view coming into the year on the pr the price of commodities? Were you a, a commodity bear, a commodity bull? And how did Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the responding explosion in the price of commodities, how did that change your view? Yeah. So no one really has saw that coming that uh, Russia will invade uh, the Ukraine um, at, at the beginning of the year. Um, so I guess this also catch many investors on, on the wrong foot. Um, in terms of uh, supply chain issues, um, which is a big topic in the commodity sector, because many prices are also driven by supply chain factors, um, for example, trucking or shipping, um, we, we actually saw um, easing signs. Um, so the con congestion was getting uh, less at the ports, freight rates came down a little bit to a certain extent, um, as did trucking rates. And we also saw a, a topping out process in uh, the PPI, Producer Price Index, which was an uh, encouraging sign. Um, my belief was that inflation is actually topping out as well because it was um, basically just hard to um, beat the year on year comparisons, um, which is how inflation is basically measured. Um, but yeah, the invasion um, from Russia and to the Ukraine was just a game changer um, because yeah, both countries are just uh, really important players in the commodity sector, um, both in the energy sector, but also in the grain sector. And this, in my opinion, extended the, the current uh, commodity bull market um, over an unknown time. So... Basically, what I'm saying also is that if we see signs of a peace agreement or that uh, things will get better uh, on behalf of this dispute, um, that commodity prices will weaken again. But um, it's just so hard to forecast these political-driven things. Um, yeah. So, Lucas, you changed your midterm view, let's call it, because of uh, the invasion of Ukraine. You you were bearish on the commodity complex to cautiously bullish. But the first time that we spoke, Lucas, I believe it was March 10th. And that was either two days before or two days after the absolute peak when, you know, uh, WTI crude was at like $120. The USO, US oil fund was at $86. It was crazy. And at that time, Lucas, you were extremely bearish, which me, you know, you and I have opposite styles and your style is much better to be clear. But I'm someone who, because I'm, I'm a journalist, I talk to a lot of people, I'm, I can get kind of worked up. I'm like, it's, there, there's a, there's, there's a shortage. Oh my God. Blah, blah, blah. Um, and you were much more common collected and I asked you, I pretty much named every commodity. I was like, cotton, and you were like, bearish. Natural gas, bearish. Oil, bearish. And the reasons I didn't really get at the time, but they had to do with the certain spreads and uh, particularly the shape of the forward curve. Can you explain why, what did you see in the forward curve of oil and natural gas that made you so bearish about a month ago? And why are you cautiously bullish now? What's changed? Yeah, there, Jack, I think you give me way too much credit here. Um, basically, uh, what I saw was just a 
human nature and human um, psychology. Uh, we saw uh, maximum fear in the market. Uh, the sentiment in these markets was way over the top. Um, uh, so sorry, sorry, sorry. For, just to be clear, for an equity world, maximum fear means everyone's bearish. But in commodities, maximum fear can mean everyone's bullish because they think the world's going to end and there's no going to be no oil. So maximum fear in terms of price going up. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, that's uh, important to know for, for listeners. Um, yeah, uh, you, you talked about uh, the forward curve. Um, it's an also important um, theme if you're a futures trader. Um, what is what is a backwardation? A backwardation is basically if um, the futures contract um, that you have right now um, is, is the highest uh, in price value and the futures contract that comes next is cheaper than the current run. So basically it means um, there are so many buyers in the market that want uh, the uh, nearest delivery possible. So they're, um, they're able to pay a higher premium on, on the forward contract just to get earlier delivery on, on the commodity. Um, and if something like this appears in, in the forward curve, it's called a backwardation. Um, if, if the forward curve is normal, as we call it, um, then it's in a contango. That means um, as longer as the next futures contract is in the future, um, the price here it gets. Um, but what we currently see is in so many commodity markets, basically the whole energy sector, the whole grain sector and parts of the soft commodity sector is um, there are solely uh, backwardations because um, yeah, demand is really so, so high. And yeah, there are different ways to measure the extent of backwardation. Um, what I'm using therefore is I look at time spreads between um, futures contracts. Um, what I'm using is looking uh, at the first and the second futures contract. Um, um, but I'm also looking at the current futures contract and the one one year in the future, which is basically a one year time spread. Um, and what I what I was observing back then when we spoke first was that the the spreads were at levels that uh, usually lead to actually a decline in in commodity prices. Because you can you can very good see um, if the if the premium on on certain con contracts is too high, that speaks actually for too much pessimism in the market um, and too many buyers in the market, and this was actually uh, really what happened uh, back then um, because commodity prices were um, at this moment declining again. Right. Just to zoom out a bit, so for people who don't know what backwardation or contango is, just look up the price of oil, WTI, and in, on CME, let's say, and you'll, you'll, you'll see the current contract, May 2022, 110. I'm just making these numbers up. Then uh, June, 107. Then July, 103. And it's downward sloping curve. So that is backwardation, which is not normal. Normal is contango. And Lucas, I heard from the uh, commodity traders I've spoken to, that backwardation is bullish. But it's my understanding from you that, yes, backwardation is bullish, but extreme backwardation, like the type that we can see in this chart uh, for, for one month uh, spread of natural gas, 
can actually be bearish. In particular, the spread with the one month between the front month, which in this case would be May, and the June, which would be the second month. Yeah, I think that's also a topic we should elaborate on because um, there are many commodity funds out there and also commodity ETFs, which have a particular great performance over the last two years. But here it's really important to look at these uh, ETFs and funds and look uh, what is actually in them. And uh, most of the times uh, those ETFs are futures backed. So um, basically the ETF is buying futures contracts and uh, this is what you get uh, as an ETF. It's basically replicated. Um, this works very, very good um, as a passive investment strategy as long as uh, many commodities are in the backwardation. Because if you are a futures traders, trader and you um, have contracts, um, you are forced to roll these contracts into uh, next month. And if you, in a backwardation, like many commodities are right now, you actually make a rolling win. So you, you make a little bit of money if you roll a contract into the next month. And this is particular also a big reason why um, commodity funds um, in this environment performing pretty good. But this should also be a warning sign to investors um, that things can uh, change here real fast if these backwardations switch back again into a contango. Yes, and I think things are maybe in a mild contango for the front month, but in the one-year spread, so that uh, which we can put up here, that would be May 22 minus May 2023, still in backwardation. So tell us what we're seeing here. I think in the red line is the uh, price of natural gas, and then the, the blue, the candlestick, is the spread. Right. Um, basically, what I'm what I'm doing with these charts is confirming breakouts. So um, if I see that uh, commodity, like for example natural gas, as we have here, is breaking up to the upside. Um, I would like to confirm this breakout with the term structure. So what I'm looking is, I'm, look, I'm looking if the one-year spread is also breaking out to the upside. If that's the case, this is confirming to me the bullish bias. And it's yeah, basically another part of my, uh, my analysis, my, my, my research that I'm doing um, to confirm trade. We also spoke earlier about risk management. Uh, which we just should all, always tell uh, listeners is uh, place a stop um, if a, if an idea um, isn't working out as you expected. You always need to have a stop to yeah protect protect your money. Um, everything I do is very much statistical driven, um, and it's all about probabilities. But uh, you have to play after your own rules um, to keep uh, the money management going. I believe you use that same technique on soybean meal. If you look at this chart in the blue line, it's the price of soybean meal. The candlestick black and blue is the time spread, the one-year time spread for, for soybean meal. So the fact that uh, the, the spread has been going down means it's, it's, it's still in backwardation, as you say, but it's, it's not uh, going, it, it's, it's less in backwardation. It's going less into backwardation. And that for you is, is your signal, right? Yeah, exactly. So Lucas, that is the technical reason for your short on soybean meal. But you also have a fundamental reason that involves the huge surge in the price of fertilizers and how that impacts farmers' decisions on which crops to plant. So what is your fundamental reason 
on your soybean meal short? Yes, as we discussed earlier, um, the USDA last week uh, released um, the planting process report um, for U.S. farmers. And the main change from last year that we saw there was that farmers actually forecasting to plant um, much more soybeans than they will plant corn. Um, so basically what we will see if this plays out uh, like it should is that we will have uh, much more soybeans um, at the end of uh, next year than we will have corn. So uh, from this standpoint, fundamental standpoint, this is actually um, bullish for corn prices and bearish for um, soybean prices. Uh, now, of course, the next question that you probably have is why is this the case? So why do farmers do that? Um, that it's, and this is just because fertilizer prices were also going exponential over, over the last years. And um, now together with sanctions on Russia, uh, fertilizer prices were going up even more, um, especially um, um, granular fertilizers. Um, which are based on natural gas. So there you have the connection again. Russia is the main uh, exporter of natural gas and you have nitrogen-based fertilizers, uh, which are in the uh, processing um, step made, made out of natural gas. Um, there's the connection again. And if we now look at how much uh, percentage of the operating costs need uh, both grains, we just have to say that soybeans need around 18% uh, of the operating costs uh, come here from fertilizers. While if you look at corn prices, you have as much as uh, 37%. So there's a huge difference. And if you are a farmer and you have to decide which one uh, makes more sense to plant in terms of making money at the end of the year, and you see that uh, fertilizer prices are going and going and going higher, um, then I think what happened here is just farmers realized it makes, um, from an economic standpoint, more sense to plant soybeans because I will need less fertilizers than um, planting corn. Um, so yeah, this is my thesis why we actually um, saw these changes in, in these reports and why I'm um, bearish on soybeans. So it's kind of like if the price of water went up 50 times, farmers would plant, you know, fewer roses and more cactuses. <laughs> yeah, that's a good example, Jack. Um, what, what I should also point out that <clears throat> in, in, in the future space, there are many ways to, to play those trades. Um, I, for example, decided to go and short solely the soybean meal contract. Um, you could, on the other hand, also say, um, I just perform a spread trade, which would basically uh, be the analogy of saying, um, I bet on higher corn prices, so I go long corn. And, and I also think that uh, soybean prices will decline in value. So I go a long corn, short soybean trade, and you just uh, bet on the spread. Um, this would be another way to perform such a trade if you have uh, the same thesis like like I have here. Um, as you can see, uh, there are very very much uh, variations um, that you can you can play around in in the futures world.
And Lucas, what about wheat? Again, you know, I'm living in the media. I'm uh, like, I see, oh my God, Ukraine and Russia, they produce all of this wheat. You, Egypt, is the price of wheat is going to go up so many times. And coincidentally, you had the price of like wheat ETFs and front month futures surge. But now they've come down. And the question is, is that due to speculation? What's going on with the fundamentals? You know, most of the wheat that Russia and Ukraine produces, it actually consumes itself. It doesn't export. So what's your outlook on the, on the wheat complex? And has the bullishness gotten a little bit ahead of itself? Yeah. And this was uh, also my thesis back when we spoke last time, um, when we actually saw the peak in uh, wheat prices. Um for now, no one knows if we see higher highs. I, I, from my standpoint, I do not think that we see higher highs on uh, wheat prices. What I think happened there was that the market tried to price in um, that the whole crop um, from Russia and from Ukraine uh, will be gone um, for the next year. And I think this reflected the, pr the price surge back then. Um, but I think the market became a little bit more uh, confident that this view was probably too extreme um, and therefore prices from, from wheat uh, crashed back down and, and are still, and I think we have to point this out again, are still on very elevated levels. Um, but yeah, uh, as I said before, I don't think that we will go uh, much higher here in, in terms of wheat prices. Lucas, what role does shipping play in all of this? The, the, you know, you've got some great charts showing the huge surge in the different indices, the China Freight Index, the Harpex Index, the Drury World Container Index. Some of them have gone down a little bit, but some of them continue to rise. What does this indicate and how, you know, how does it affect the price of the commodities themselves? Yeah, a very important topic when it comes to commodities. And here it's also important to differentiate between container shipping and dry bulk shipping. Um, we have many commodities that are shipped by container, like for example, frozen orange uh, concentrate, like for example, cocoa, coffee beans. Um, but we also have components that are shipped with dry bulk uh, yeah, tribal buckles, um, like, uh, for example, many, many uh, grains or almost all of them. And therefore, there are uh, different uh, ways to measure um, the cost of shipping these things. And um, what we can basically see is that the price of uh, dry bulk shipping um, has come down a lot from, from its uh, actual peak. Um, but it's still on uh, elevated levels. Um, so this is also uh, kind of a supporting factor here when it comes to these commodity prices. The actual transport and shipping of this commodity is, is still uh, very, very pricey, much pricier than it was uh, yeah, years, years before. And if you also look at uh, the, these indices um, from, from container shipping, and this is also true there, but uh, container shipping is a little bit more extreme because uh, we still uh, at, at the highs. Uh, it seems to me like container rates are um, yeah, trying to roll over to the downside again. But uh, we just uh, we can't forget at uh, which extreme levels we are still here on on the cost of shipping goods. Um, 
A big factor also here is, are the renewed um, uh, corona restrictions in, in China, which could to some extent, at least for now, cool down um, the shipping rate market a little bit because um, production is to a certain extent over there in China um, halted because of COVID restrictions, which could ease the market um, for now. Um, and if you look at the container rates, this looks to me like this is also the case. Um, but uh, I really have to uh, monitor this closely over, over a longer term basis. Um, yeah, for now, I think uh, rates are really uh, rolling over to the downside. Um, also, if you if you keep in mind that the economic slowdown um, will will play its role in in, in this environment. Um, so this could be another uh, main factor that brings down um, container rates as well, um, slowing slowing demand from the consumer um, for goods, but a pickup uh, for demand in services would be um, another point that uh, would uh, sustain this weakness in container container rates. And in particular, you uh, you made a note that the shipping rates affect the the commodities, the shot, the soft uh, commodities. What did you mean by that? What commodities are we talking about? And is it you know up or down? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So basically, um, we have a high correlation between shipping rates and, uh, or I must say, between container shipping rates um, and the price of soft commodities. As I said before, this is mainly the reason that most, uh, if not all, soft commodities are transported by container ships, while, for example, um, crude oil or natural gas are, are transported by a tanker, uh, grains are transported by dry bulk shippers. And um, this is the reason why there is such a high correlation between container freight rates and the price of soft commodities. Um, so basically, you can say if we see um, weakness in container rates, um, this would for me also indicate that we do for reversal in um, soft commodity prices, namely here um, cotton, sugar, um, some that I'm uh, yeah more bearish towards, or cocoa. Um, yeah, so this is uh, definitely a correlation to keep in mind: shipping rates and soft commodities. You said copper. Uh, cotton. Cotton. Oh, sorry, sorry, I missed her. Okay. Well, I just my, my mind wanted to go to copper, uh, uh, <laughs> Lucas, because I know you are quite bearish on copper, um, industrial commodity used in a lot of traditional manufacturing, but also you know building the economy of the future, electric vehicles, you know all these motors. You know, um, we're, we're going to have to have a lot of copper, right? Why are you bearish on copper at this particular junction? Here, in the medium term, um, I'm, I'm bearish copper because of mainly two um, factors. The first one is that I believe in the slowing economic momentum. And uh, we saw more evidence of that with the um, inverting yield curve, uh, which usually leads to a recession over the next 11, 12 months, um, something like that, uh, which would, of course, uh, slow slow the uh, down the demand for, for, for copper as well. Um, this is the one factor that I see, so economic um, slowdown. On the other hand, there is an interesting correlation between copper inventories and the copper price itself. 
So we actually see right now, if you look at the LME uh, copper inventories, that uh, they are very much down um, over the last, yeah, I guess one year. Um, it's it, it seems to me like there is already a bottom bottoming process forming, um, but nevertheless, the fact is that inventories are very much down. Um, the important aspect here is that the correlation says that if these copper inventories get refilled again or restacked, that um, the actual copper price tends to move at least sideways, but uh, more than often um, declines in price. Um, so another technical um, observation I made here, which could be quite important in the future. And um, yeah, those are the two factors why why I see a bearish case for for um, copper at least in the, in the midterm. As you pointed out, um, the actual demand for copper over the long term is uh, huge, and uh, if we if we can actually meet uh, the current demand to build the economy and the world of the future, um, it's a uh, whole another question uh, which which I doubt as well so please keep in mind that this is a is a medium uh, forecast for me uh, not a long term lucas t- uh, typically huge surge in the price of commodities it coincides with dollar weakness this situation we've seen over the past 4 months a little bit rare in that commodities have lost their minds they're you know off the charts but the dollar too has risen you know appreciated against pretty much every other currency maybe with the exception of the brazilian real how do you explain that phenomenon and you know how do, how are you thinking about the negative now positive correlation between commodities and the dollar yeah there's another aspect that makes the current uh, commodity bull market so unique basically in the past you, you you could have said um, if commodities going higher, the dollar is uh, currently in a weaker spot. Um, but you can't you can't do this anymore because the correlation is actually broken um, over the last uh, year. Um, so tough spot here. You spoke about uh, the Brazilian real. <clears throat> this is also an observation I made is. Um, if you look at the year-to-date performance of currencies um, against the US dollar, you can actually see that those commodities that have uh, high exposure towards commodities, like for example, uh, Brazil, um, Australia, or even New Zealand and Canada, um, those currencies um, performing much better uh, against uh, the US dollar. And yeah, and I think you can um solely explain this with the reason that uh, commodity prices are doing so well which is benefiting um the economies over there lucas you're in germany germany's kind of the the hot spot right now for vulnerability to commodity price surges because so much of, of germany's natural gas comes from russia what are you seeing on the ground i mean are, are people driving less you know how much has the 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 uh, euro per 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 uh, liter gone up, and is it is it depressing demand? And do you think it's realistic for Europe to cut off uh, oil, natural gas, or even as was proposed today on April fifth, um, coal from Russia? 
Yeah, first of all, uh, I think it's uh, very depressing to see uh, those price surges, um, but especially for um, households and people in society that have the least, um, they have to turn around every euro um, yeah, to basically keep uh, things going. Um, it's a tough spot. Uh, it's much more pricier to refill your car. It's much more pricier to use air energy. Um, if you, for example, look at heating, uh, many households over here in Germany heat with um, gas as well. And we saw that uh, year to date, the prices of um, um, natural gas um, for consumers uh, rose more than 75%, which is insane because we are just uh, in April. Um, so uh, yeah, we, we really uh, feel, feel the consequences um, that especially um, these Russian sanctions have. Um, in, in the media, we uh, actually also today saw renewed, um, yeah, um, changes to put more restrictions on Russia and to ban even oil, coal and natural gas imports towards Europe. Um, I can understand the thinking and uh, I kind of support it but we also have to be realistic here and look how dependent Germany actually still is on Russian energy imports and if you are realistic you just can't cut off um, all the imports energy uh, imports you currently have from Russia um, from one day to another so this is this is a a uh, step you can make, but uh, over a prolonged time frame. Um, yeah. Why not, Lucas? Why can't Germany cut Russia, cut itself off from Russian oil, natural gas? Uh, you know, how high would the price of oil and natural gas go? And you know, are your back tests that you've done over the past 10, 20, 30, 40, maybe 50 years, are, are they, do they no longer apply in a world where Russian gas is no longer flowing? Yeah, first of all, Jack, I really can't answer the question of how high the prices would go uh, if we really cut off all energy exposure we have to Russia. Uh, but what we actually have to talk about is what what kind of solutions are here or which partners can Germany find to cut exposure from Russia and to put it, for example, to uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, which also have uh, large gas flows. Um, but... We know we know from the past how how long it usually takes to um, yeah get get those contracts done, and um, I just don't think that Germany is able um, to get these deals done in a couple of days. I think that's a process that lasts at least months. Um, I hope not years, um, but I think we also come back here to the same problem we have in Russia uh, in uh, sorry in um, the US we need to use the time that we have now from spring to autumn to make new deals with with our allies um, with western countries um, and um, yeah we really have to uh, use this time um, and uh, get some deals done to change our exposure here away from Russia um and search other other partners in in this area um yeah and germany is also very reliant on its chemical uh, industry 
And if you would just, for example, you cut um, Russian gas flows from today to tomorrow, this would have also high implications, uh, many, many jobless people there. This would also cause some dramatic uh, changes in the society. Um, I just don't think that it's a, a realistic standpoint to cut this exposure from, from one day to another. Just uh, put it that way. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, Lucas, to switch topics entirely, I've got to ask you about one of the other commodities, if we can call it, that you are constructive on, bullish on, and that is Bitcoin. What's your what's your thinking here? Yeah, uh, I guess, as you pointed out at the beginning, we're still quite young, and this makes it easier for us to grab the technology that actually is uh, behind uh, the whole cryptocurrency uh, sector. I'm also a believer in uh, long-term crypto Uh, currencies like uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and uh, but less on 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 those stable coins that I uh, built on the actual technology. Um, what I can't really do is take uh, my analysis process and um, put it one on one from a commodity like uh, coffee to Bitcoin, um, because uh, there are very much uh, different uh, market drivers that are in place there. Um, nevertheless, I still see Bitcoin as a commodity because of its uh, scarcity. Um, we know that there will be uh, mined a maximum of 21 million uh, Bitcoins and this uh, make, 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 makes the asset uh, scarer. And it's also the reason for me it puts to put the uh, commodity Bitcoin uh, to the commodity gold um, because of its scarcity. For me, um, I know many people don't like to hear this, uh, but for me, um, Bitcoin is still something like the digital gold um, for, for also younger generations. And yeah, so generally I would say that I'm a big friend of um, uh, yeah cryptocurrencies, but um, Every asset class has has its own time and the art is here to find uh, the right timing to be in it and know when it makes more sense to be out of it. Well, Lucas, it's been great having you on Forward Guidance, uh, hearing your framework, hearing your views on commodities. Um, you know, where can people find your work? Uh, what's your Twitter? And you know, tell them about the report that you do. Yeah, thanks, uh, Jack, uh, for giving me the opportunity. Uh, it was a pleasure to be uh, be on the show. Um, people can look me up uh, on a Twitter name at Lucas Kümmerle. Um, you can also Google the Kümmerle report, um, which is the report I write for institutional but also uh, private investors, which just want to get uh, to know the commodity sector better, to see what the latest trends are and where the latest opportunities are. So um, yeah, you can look this up and yeah. Yeah, so you have a substack. So yeah, so the commodity report I think is your free one and the, the Kumula report, your last name, is the paid one. You know, I uh, got to see see your paid work and both of them are great, but the, the paid one is better, I said. What Way more in depth. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Jack. I really appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Well, Lucas, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, Vic. Bye. <laughs>